Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Kristen Oakley. With her background as a lawyer and her travels across Europe, it may seem unlikely to find Kristen Oakley writing in a library in Madison, Wisconsin. And yet, that's exactly where she is most mornings. Her novels tackle topics not often discussed in small-town America where they are set, including unschooling, intolerance, and gay marriage. But with a deep respect for her characters and the people they represent, Oakley encourages us into meaningful dialogue without shame or guilt. Kristen, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you about your novel, Carpe Diem, Illinois, and your upcoming books, as well as uh, what brought you back to writing and some of the life experiences that you've had that have influenced your work or maybe not so much influenced. But to start, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? Um, Writing to me is many, many things. First of all, I guess it's just the ability to create and play God. I love creating these new worlds and these characters, throwing them into scenarios and then see what happens. It's just an incredible thrill. I also, uh, with writing, the ability to communicate and debate ideas is really important to me. I'm passionate about certain ideas, as in my first book, Carpe Diem, Illinois, was unschooling. The second book is um, God on Mayhem Street, talking and discussing intolerance and gay marriage. Um, The third book is a sequel, but the fourth book I've just started, which is not related to the other ones, is all about good and evil and what exactly is evil. So I love the writing and being able to communicate these ideas and actually discuss them. And then finally, and really pretty selfishly, it just offers me a chance for immortality. I love the idea that my great, 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 great grandchildren can pick up my books someday. And there I am. So a lot of opportunities to express myself, to explore the world, all of those things. It's just such a thrill to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this idea of... um really exploring and going deep into an idea in your books. Um, You mentioned Carpe Diem, Illinois is about unschooling. And I'd love to know um, how you came to that particular topic and why you chose for that to be the theme of your novel. Um, I unschooled my two daughters. um, They're now 23 and 20. And when my oldest was two and a half, decided to homeschool her and had discovered, came across unschooling, which is child-led learning, instead of uh, school at home, which is similar to the public school system, where you would sit down at a desk and teach lessons, unschoolers present the world to children and, and develop their interests. They, the children themselves decide what they want to do and when they want to do that and how they want to go about doing that. So... That was our whole our whole life, uh, and I hadn't. In in addition to that time, I did write some articles for Home Education Magazine. I was a homeschool activist, very active in the movement, 
But I also had wanted in the back of my mind to write or always write a book. It really didn't originally come up with the idea of writing about this unschooling town. The original idea was I had been listening to Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 in my car driving around. And I got to thinking, why is it that futuristic uh, books of describing futuristic societies, those societies are always dystopian or evil. And why couldn't we have a society that's an improvement? And of course, Ray Bradbury was making a point about our own society. But I thought, I want to write a book about something that could be an improvement over our own. And that's when I decided to write about this little town that unschools their, their children, Carpe Diem. Um, just for me, an idealized town, a perfect town where we could all explore, not just children, but adults, all our interests and our passions. And that would be, you know, our goal in life. Mm-hmm. And Carpe Diem, Illinois, was the 2014 Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year for non-traditionally published fiction. Yes. That non-traditionally published fiction, um, I think, is becoming more and more. You decided to go with a small press. Um, Carpe Diem, Illinois, is published by Little Creek Press. And I'm curious why you chose to go that route and what that process was like for you. Well, I had, the book was finished probably, I think it was around 2012, and I actually pitched the book to agents at the UW-Madison Writers Institute two years in a row. They, um, and then I also sent out oh, over 30 query letters um, to agents and publishers, and I didn't get a lot of interest. I did get people who wanted me to send a manuscript or some pages, but it wasn't a lot of follow-through, and I think in hindsight that people... A lot of people, it's particularly the general public, when they hear it's an unschooling or homeschooling book, their eyes kind of glaze over and they're not really interested. So I knew it had a great uh, storyline. And of course, I wrote it, so I, I, I feel that the writing was exceptional. I didn't want it just sitting on a shelf. I wanted it out, get it out there. It was already done. So I thought, why don't I look into self-publishing? And there's a lot of avenues, even now, which is the last couple of years, for that, a lot of opportunities for writers. I decided to go with um, Little Creek Press rather than going online, say, you know, just putting it on Create Space or something like that, because Kristen Mitchell, is, who's the owner of Little Creek Press, is a graphic designer by um, trade. That's what she originally had done before she opened her company. And I had seen one of her books, uh, the cover of it, and thought, that's just an amazing cover. I want this woman to design my cover. So I talked to Kristen. I met her a couple of times, and we went ahead with the project. Um, there, she's kind of a hybrid, as a, as opposed to just self-publishing. She does have vetting. In other words, she won't publish just anything. It's got to be good quality in her mind. So that that's also a nice nice um, thing, you know, to do. And she does the, runs the gamut as far as she could have just done the cover or she could do everything. Since it was my first book, I just hired her to do everything for me. So that's how I got started. And, and now um, I don't know if I would try the traditional route, at least for my series. I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I won't. I, you just have so much more control as a writer over everything by doing it yourself. The cover, the, the layout editing. I have a, an incredible editor that I work with. All of those things I get to I get to do and decide. 
and I don't have to wait. Um, you know, I can do it all right now. With um, traditional publishing, once I had gotten an agent, it would take maybe quite a while for the agent to sell the book to a publisher, and then a quite a while for the publisher to actually publish the book and get it on the shelf. Generally about three to five years for that whole process. And I just am too impatient for that. I, I'm, I want the book in hand and I wanted to be sharing it with my readers. So um, it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I went, I tried the traditional route. I think that's really important. And I may try that with this other book that's not related to the series. But um, at this point, I'm really happy with the process and with Little Creek Press. I think that's also important because when we talk about the traditional publishing route, it's, and there's that lag time, sometimes our books are really timely. And when they finally make it to the shelf, the audience that we've been trying to reach may not still be there, or maybe they're in a different way. Um, and so there's a risk when we go the traditional publishing route that I think we're missing or is less of a risk when we self-publish. Exactly. Well, and then when you start a series, now I have a fan base because the first book, and they want they want that second book out quickly. They don't want to wait for it. Um, so there is that, right. Um, and as you say, timely. Um, the second book in particular talks about the presidential candidate. So it's really important for me to get that book out this year with the big um, elections coming up so soon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about sort of your past. You actually have a law degree in practice law in Boston before you returned back to writing. And I'm curious if working as a lawyer had an impact on your writing and the kinds of things that you're interested in writing about, or if there is almost a complete opposite in that your writing is an escape from the legal world and everything that you experienced there? Well, um, I was a lawyer for about a minute and a half. <laughs> uh, what happened? I graduated law school and uh, got married and moved to Boston and right away interviewed and got a job with a small firm doing real estate, half real estate and half general practice. And this was in the late 80s. And in 1989, the market bottomed out. So the office that I worked for offered for me to stay on. And I thought, well, I don't really like doing this. The thing about being a, a, an attorney that uh, most people don't realize is that the job changes every single day. Uh, I like the, the, the new experiences with a new job, but after a while, you've got it figured out. This job, no, because you don't know what the clients are going to do, what the judges are going to do. Uh, the law changes constantly. And so it was, it was too much for me. I, it wasn't something I was interested in. And I spent a summer trying to figure out what I was going to do with my law degree. And I actually uh, met with the law librarian at Harvard uh, Law School who had just gotten back from traveling around the world for her job. And I thought, that's what I want to do. So for the next three years, I actually was a law librarian in a downtown Boston firm and became head law librarian there. And then I had my, my first daughter. So after that, I retired from the law. And actually, my, full, my job was to be a mom. 
and then ended up homeschooling in them. But the writing never actually went away during that whole time. Um, as a lawyer, of course, you're writing all the time. And before that, when I was in law school, I clerked for several judges in, in Madison and worked, uh, wrote their opinions for them. So always writing, of course, not creative. It was more the legal aspects, but, but communicating in, in so many ways. So I think even though it was on the shelf, the writing, the, the creative writing, it was, it's always been a part of my life. It didn't really come out until, and I didn't really realize I could make a living at it until, um, let's see, when was that? During the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton, somebody had written an article in the local newspaper. This time, this time I was living in Freeport, Illinois, and somebody wrote an article and I it, it bothered me what they had to say, so I wrote in response. And then another local library, um, newspaper the editor picked that up and she said, I like your writing. Would you like to do a regular column for us? So that's how it really got me started after that. And that's when I, all these issues, I could write about anything I wanted to. So I did. I tackled all kinds of issues. I guess I've always been kind of um, interested in politics and the greater issues pretty much my whole life. Well, speaking of the greater issues, um, I'd love it if you might share some of your novel with us. Okay, this is from Carpe Diem, Illinois, Chapter 1. At the corner of Tiger Whip Road and Highway 20, Patrick Holden slumped over the handlebars of his idling Harley. The motorcycle's black leather seats and saddlebags were creased with age, the 20-year-old fenders dusty but barely scarred. Patrick hadn't aged as well as his bike. Years of fighting school administrators, education czars, and a weird mix of politicians had creased more than his outward appearance. It had creased his soul. The motorcycle's headlight illuminated the decaying facade of an abandoned shed. Swirling farm dust mixed with dry hay made Patrick cough, leaving a gritty taste in his mouth. He ran his gloved fingers over the neat stitches holding the cycle's seat together and regretted the late night meeting. He had been persuasive, articulate and even-tempered, but the meeting had been a disaster. Illinois State Senator Christopher Shaw, in all his patronizing benevolence, had refused to see the obvious dangers of his legislation. Instead, threatened by reason, the senator stormed out of his office. When the door slammed, Patrick realized he was no longer sitting. His skinny, six-foot frame leaned over the senator's wooden desk, his hands splayed on the maple, leaving damp prints. What had he done? Perhaps his father was right. Perhaps he had gone about it the wrong way, screwed things up, and jeopardized the future of Carpe Diem. The idling purr of the motorcycle's engine soothed some of Patrick's despair until a semi-trailer roared past. He shielded his eyes from a tornado of dirt and gravel and watched the truck cut a path of light on the dark highway. Cutting a path through the darkness, what an idea. Turning the motorcycle back into the two-lane highway, he fishtailed, then accelerated to 80 miles an hour. Alexandra Shaw steered her silver BMW down Highway 20 toward home. She had spent an inspiring day in Chicago at a novel writing workshop, followed by dinner with other passionate writers. She had been told several times that her story would make an excellent book. Thrilled, she hummed along to the sultry voice of Nora Jones on the radio. She couldn't remember ever being this happy. 
She slowed through a small Midwestern town, passing three churches and a corresponding number of neighborhood taverns, then sped by endless farmland, crawling with late-night tractors lighting up rows of dried corn stalks. At a sharp bend in the highway, she spotted the sign, Carpe Diem, Five Miles. That sign always intrigued her. Now she took it as a good omen, and even considered stopping for a cup of coffee until she heard the muffled, Won't you take me to Funky Town? ringtone of her cell phone. It was probably Natalia, eager to hear about her workshop. Alexandra grabbed her purse from the passenger seat and felt inside, but couldn't locate the phone. Her eyes on the road, she dumped the bag's contents. She rifled through gold pens, a mini notepad, and her leather wallet. Won't you take me to Funky Town? She had it. She looked at her right hand. A packet of tissues. She snatched another glance at the road. Won't you take me to Funky Town? A single light came over the nearest hill. A car with a busted headlight? A motorcycle? Yes, now where was the damned phone? She reached between the leather seats. Nothing. She felt on the floor found a hardened french fry. The phone stopped asking her to take it to Funky Town. Why hadn't she listened to her husband and gotten the car's Bluetooth option? The BMW's interior brightened. Alexandra jerked her head up. The motorcycle was driving in her lane, straight at her. She punched the horn, but the motorcycle didn't swerve. She yanked the steering wheel to the right, her foot smashing the brake pedal, the car's tires screaming. It wasn't enough. The motorcycle slammed into her. The wrenching scream of tortured metal filled her ears. She buried her head in her arms. Shattered glass spit at her, pinpricking her bare hands. She tasted blood. The steering wheel's airbag crushed her against the driver's seat. The driver's door smashed inward, the side airbag deploying too late. The car began to roll. Compressed, gasping for breath, strapped into the tumbling car, Alexandra flipped over and over as if on a crazed amusement park ride. My book will never be published, Natalia. I'm sorry. Right before passing out, she saw something bounce off the airbag, the delinquent cell phone. Thank you. Welcome. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the work that you do now, in addition to being a writer. Previously, you were the president and one of the founding members of In Print, a professional writers association affiliated with the Chicago Writers Association. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that organization came to be and some of what you think the importance of being part of a writers association is for both established writers as well as up and coming writers. Okay, I'd be happy to. Um, there's an update to that. I am actually now again the current president of Inprint. I took over again in June. My editor said I was crazy to do that because she said, uh, How much does it pay? And it, it doesn't pay anything, it's a totally volunteer organization. But because of Inprint, I've made a lot of amazing connections, but also part of my passion with writing is sharing that with writers, other writers, and helping them to um, fulfill their dreams of being writers. And so that's, that's my pay, is just that reward of being with other writers. So Imprint got started in um, September of 2011. There was a group of five women, um, Kathleen Tresemer, Mary Lamphere, Pat Noel, uh, Carol Ahrens, and myself, 
who had belonged to another organization in Rockford that was, um, it's the Rockford Writers Guild, which has been around for 70 years, I believe. And it, a wonderful organization. We wanted to um, become more professionals as writers. And unfortunately, the Writers Guild was more interested in it's a community of writers sharing their work. But, but not necessarily exploring how to get published or anything like that. So we decided that was missing in the Rockford community, an, an organization that helped writers to become professional and to grow in their craft. So we got together in September and then uh, March of 2012 had our first kickoff um, event. We had a keynote speaker who's Kelly Epperson, who's pretty well known in the Rockford area, who's actually a friend of ours who you know, talked about the joy of writing. And then we developed workshops, uh, there's writing retreats, that kind of thing, everything that we wanted to do for ourselves, for our writing, and then hoped that other writers would be interested and would come along for the ride. And it's, it's taken off, it's done pretty well in Rockford. I think we're up to about 75 members. Um, when we were in the planning stages of how we wanted to develop this organization, we didn't know what we were doing. So we decided to get in contact with a larger organization to kind of get their feedback and help. And so we became an affiliate of the Chicago Writers Association. Um, so we do a lot of things with them directly and I'm actually on the board of that organization as well. So um, we offer a lot of opportunities, Imprint does, for writers to get together and I think it's extremely important. I think a lot of writers don't realize that they need that. Uh, most of us tend to be introverted and enjoy the solitary events that we create, you know, in our writing and time that we just spend with our characters and don't venture out. But there's a lot of um, need for understanding because when you, for instance, when I tell my daughters that I'm writing about Leo and he, I just realized he's a triathlete, they look at me like I'm crazy. They just don't get it. They say, mom, you wrote him. How do you not know this? Whereas other writers immediately, oh, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. We need that community, that sense of community, and we need the networking. It's, it's great to be able to pass on information about which editor works for you or what conference is coming up. Um, all of those things, very important. Um, and you can see it in our meetings. Uh, we meet the second Saturday of every month. And we alternate between keynote speakers and workshops. And you can, after the, the general meeting, we, we're around for about an hour after that just to socialize. And the room is buzzing with people just wanting to share their stories and their process and, and how their writing is coming together. So it's extremely important. Um, and I'm so glad that we can you know, offer that for, for writers in the Rockford and Chicago areas. You also, in addition to uh, being part of Imprint and writing, you also teach writing as part of the uh, UW-Madison Department of Continuing Studies. And one of the classes that you're known for is a workshop on teaching how to write cliffhangers. And I'm really interested in this and how you came to teach this course about cliffhangers and maybe a sneak peek of what some of make some of what you think makes a good cliffhanger oh tricky um well i had done through imprint again this is this whole thing with connections um i had 
asked Lori Shear um, of UW Madison Division of Continuing Studies to come down as a keynote speaker for us. I had gotten Lori Shear from Christine DeSmit, who I had taken a class with at Right by the Lake up at UW um, previously, and she recommended Lori. So Lori came down and, and um, had this great keynote about the fear of success. Wonderful program. And then she offered to do workshops for us. So we had this which she did uh, after over a couple of years. Um, so we had this great working relationship. And then she asked me to help to, if I'd be interested in helping out with the Writers Institute every year, and then suggested maybe doing an online course. So I had a couple um, proposals written up and one of them was the cliffhanger proposal and they, they decided to go with that. So yes, I teach that online. Um, and I also teach it at the Writers Institute in, which is in the spring, and then also um, last year at Weekend with Your Novel, which is in November. Um, so lots of great feedback on that. Um, cliffhangers, yeah, are are fun. They're interesting, and people a lot of people think, well, you know, if I'm literary or if I'm romance, I don't really need to know that. But basically, it's how you keep the reader reading. How do you, how do you write so that they get mad at you and they don't want to put that book down, but it's three in the morning and they've got, you know, a big meeting the next day. That's what you're going for with the cliffhangers. So when I talk about it in my online course, I talk about just the first, I mean, when I talk about it at the conferences, I just really touch on the first couple of um, lessons in my course. And it's really all about the timing. Um, you know, it's like a punchline to a joke. You got to get the timing right. It's about building empathy for your characters. Uh, why would the reader want to care about this this particular character? You really want that so that when you've got the compelling set of circumstances at the end, they're they're pulling for that character or they're worried for that character. There's a lot of fear. Is this character going to make it? Is this character going to get out of this situation? And then you just need to know when to to you know. To stop at the right at the right time. So those are kinds of the things that I talk about in my course and um, in the workshops. But there, um, a lot of it too just comes from reading um, good books, and I I tend to read those kinds of books, and um, you get the natural rhythm for how how to do these. So um, yeah, very important I think to all kinds all genres of books just to get grip the, the uh, right reader. And then, of course, then you hopefully don't want to buy all your books. Hopefully so. Yes. I think it's also important to know about cliffhangers. I myself am a creative nonfiction writer, and I find that some of the skills that are important in writing a good cliffhanger are important in creating the kind of narrative and the kind of memoir that keeps people engaged and reading and not just thinking, why am I interested in this person's life? I think that some of the skills that are part of cliffhanger, writing good cliffhangers, are really helpful in bridging that and keeping someone engaged. Um, so it's such a it's such an important skill and I think one that we don't talk about often enough. Exactly. Well, you're creative nonfiction, memoir, all of those things, they're, they're still story. Basically, it comes down to a story. And readers want a good story. And the cliffhangers do that for them. Absolutely. I'm curious the best advice that you've ever received. Ooh. 
I actually wrote a blog about the best re advice I ever received. And I think, I think if I remember right, it's been a while, but I think it was talking about just right. Um, a lot of people say that, a lot of people talk about it, but many times when you're writing, especially your first novel or your first nonfiction book, whatever, you go over and over and over the first chapter, just trying to get that right. But if you write the whole book, you'll realize that when you get to the end, you don't really know the first chapter until you've completed the whole book. When you get to the end, you're going to realize you're going to have to change all that in the beginning anyway. It just depends upon where the story takes you. So just get the whole thing down. Just get it written. Um, first drafts are crap. <laughs> we all know that. I mean, you just, you're just getting it on the page. Don't worry about the editing. Don't worry about other people reading it. Write it for yourself. Get it out there. Get it out down. And then the second and third and fourth drafts, then you're revising. Then you're polishing it. But by then, you know what the whole story is about. You know the structure. A lot of people, when they write, um, there's really two kinds of writers. A lot of them are, are plotters. So they plot out the whole thing from beginning to end. And other writers are pantsers. It's seat of the pants they write from. I'm on the second version. I don't know where the story's going to go until um, I get there. But I think even the plotters, too, even though they've got a lot of it plotted out, until it's all written, they really don't know what the story is completely about. So the best advice is not to procrastinate, which is easy for us to do, not to, you know, put off and, and do housework or take one more uh, course or read one more how-to book. It's just actually every day do some writing. I try to do um, a thousand words a day. Um, right now, now that I've said that, I'm not doing that because I'm editing uh, God on Mayhem Street. So I'm, I'm working hard trying to get that done. But I consider that the writing process too. So I'm meeting that goal. So setting goals helps for getting it all down. Um, that's the other thing about meeting with other writers. I belong to a critique group. Uh, we've been together seven years now, I guess. And because of them, I finished my first book because every month or every other month, I had to have a chapter for them to critique. And so that helped set goals for me to get it, to completely get it done. So however you can get the writing done, whether it's setting up goals, um, like having a critique group, or now in my case, um, I want to get book two done for a particular book sign that's coming up or an event that's coming up that I want to go, that I want to have it at. Um, whatever it is, set the goals and just get, get that writing done. Mm -hmm. And that can be so hard, but I think having that accountability even to ourselves makes the difference between writers who are being published and writers who are saying, I'm a writer. Right. And, you know, and not having, not having something to show as a result. That, that's right. Um, Laurie Shear talks about in her fear of success, what happens is we get, as writers, we get to the point where we're just about ready to finish that last word or to send it to a publisher or an agent, and we don't. We put it off, and it, because... We know that this this is this book is going to change our lives. To do this, it's going to it's going to change everything. So we're a little bit afraid of of the unknown of how this new life is going to look. And so I understand that with um, writers, how hard it is to do that. Um, 
but it's wonderful. For me personally, if I go a day or a couple of days without writing, do any of the writing process, I feel off. It's almost like I've got PMS because <laughs> I just, it, I'm, I'm annoyed, I'm whiny, I'm just not in the right frame of mind. And I, then I realize, oh, that's right, I haven't done any writing the last couple of days. So I think when you get into the mode of writing every day, you've created that habit and again, set those goals, it, it can get done and you, you, you cannot not do it at that point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. And I'm the same way. But I think when it comes to setting goals, for me, I have, um, for my own work, I have an accountability partner and we meet every week and we talk about what we're working on and we set uh, small goals that we can that we know that we can really attain during the week um, so that when we come back together in the next week, we have these results that we can share. And it's also something I use with my coaching clients when I do writing coaching is um, one of the big things we do is we look at, okay, what is the project you want to complete? Let's set attainable goals that you can reach and hold you accountable for that because I think it's so important to be able to look at what we want and say, okay, I know there's a way to get this. I know that there's a way to finish this manuscript or to, you know, get this chat book done. There's, there's so many times that we just get overwhelmed by the enormity of that project. And so looking at attainable goals thinking about what's the minimum that I can do this week that will move me toward my goal. How can I achieve that? What's my stretch? Where, you know, where can I really push myself to reach those goals? And for me, there's such a joy in working with clients and seeing them meet those goals and exceed them. You know, it's the thrill for me, much like you being the president of Imprint, is seeing someone succeed and getting their writing from where they are and they know that they don't want to be to where they actually want to be and to make it there and to celebrate with them. Right. But it's, it's an amazing, it's wonderful for them, but it is also wonderful for you, you know, to, to take part of that joy. Especially when you talk about an accountability partner, which I love that title. I might steal that by the way. Um, <laughs> But with our critique group, they, they grew up with my book, my first book. They, mm -hmm. they It's basically their book, too. You know, it was all our babies. We're raising this together as a class. Yes. Um, and, and when you help other writers, you feel that, too. You really invested in their creativity and their stories, which is just a wonderful thing. I'm often reminded of that proverb that it takes a village. Um, and I think when it comes to writing, that is also true. Because when you think about all of the everything that goes into getting a book from an idea that someone has to a finished, tangible product, there's so much involved in that. And we sometimes forget that when we're sitting at our desks struggling to face the page or, you know, procrastinating and flipping through Pinterest or Facebook or Instagram, you know, there can there has to be that balance. And when we have that community and that support around us, I think it's really important because it lets us know that we're not alone in this. And feeling alone as a writer can be one of the hardest things. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, because then we, you know, we're artists, so we think, well, what is this any good? Is anybody going to read this? I mean, who cares about mm-hmm. this? And when you share it with other people and get that great feedback, then you can see, yes, there's a purpose to this. There's a reason why I'm doing this. Um, so, yeah, it's invaluable. Other writers are just invaluable. That and then, um, as I said with my second book, I'm finishing up the editing um, this week, hopefully, and then I'm sending it to um, three or four experts. There's particular, I don't want to you know, give too much away, but there's particularly interesting things in, in the book. The, the second book, my main character um, is in Leo Townsend, and he's just about ready to interview the front-running presidential candidate who's openly gay. Uh, first time ever for that to happen. And it's, it's the interview of a lifetime for him when he gets a phone call from his brother who's saying his father, their father had just had a massive heart attack and he needs to come back home. So Leo misses this interview and goes back to the family farm. Now, Leo, like me, so this is where he gets it, is not a farmer and doesn't really care much for the farming life. He's really a city boy. So that's hard. Plus, he's been estranged from his dad for many years. So I don't know anything about farming, even though I live in the Midwest. I've, I've been on a farm maybe two or three times and just walked on and walked off, basically. <laughs> so one of my experts is a good friend of mine who actually has um, a pretty good sized farm. Um, in addition to that, there's a whole thing with cattle. And I had there's a vet that I met that's also a writer. He just published his first book last year. Um, through Little Creek Press also. And um, so I'm sending him the book to make sure I've gotten the, you know, the logistics of that. And then I have um, a geologist, which I can't go into why, but he's going to be looking it over for me. And then a, a good friend, good writer friend of mine is a gay man. And the book, since it deals with those issues, I really wanted him to look that over and see if I presented those well. So in addition to just having writer friends or colleagues that, you know, are helping you along the way, you also then have to get into the wider community and look for people who can, you know, check the authenticity of your book too, which for me is really important. Um, I, I don't want my writer, my reader to go along and say, well, that doesn't make any sense, or that's not true, or that didn't happen then. Um, it just pops them out of the story, and then they doubt the rest of the story, and I, I don't want that to happen. So those people too are added, those experts are added to the, the writing, my writing community, and I, as it should, I think for all writers should be the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that. That's you bring up such an important point, um, not just for writing fiction, but again for writing nonfiction. But really anything, you know, having that outside perspective of someone in the field to really, even when we've lived an experience, we have it only through our own lens. Right. And so to be able to have someone say, "Yes, this is how it is." outside of our own experience, there's also that sense of, of confirmation that we have an understanding and we get it. And at the same time, our readers will be brought into a situation that is factual and accurate. Right. Well, and it adds depth to the story, too. Um, part of the reason I write, too, and I'm sure this is the case for you, you, you want to make it interesting and informative to the reader, maybe open their eyes to something they've never experienced before. In my first book, it was unschooling. I really wrote that for the general population, not for just homeschoolers, but I wanted the general population to realize there was an alternative to public schooling. And so, 
you know, as, it, as you come across as an ex expert in that field, you want to make sure that what you're saying is, is accurate in mm -hmm. whatever it is. So, yeah, very absolutely. I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your hard-earned parting wisdom with folks who are listening to this podcast. Ooh, parting wisdom. Um, read books. <laughs> um, go to local bookstores. There's a great one in Madison called Mystery to Me. Um, Joanne Berg owns it, and she it just opened it. I don't know if it's been a year, maybe a little over a year now. Um, local bookstores like Mystery to Me support local authors. And she, when I had my um, first book signing there, I was, I think she'd opened in October and this was in April. So she's not maybe a year yet, but anyway, this is in April or May when I had my book signing. Um, she had at that point, she'd only been open eight or 10 months or whatever it was. And she had, I was the 62nd author. She had come into her store to do a book signing. So she's an incredible for the writing um, community. So readers um, support the local author, support, um, you know, your friends that are authors or whoever it is, it, it's just um, such a wonderful art and so wonderful that we have um, this, that there are people that want to be interested in writing and that are good writers and that are producing something that um, we can enjoy, um, whether it's nonfiction, fiction, even just magazine articles, whatever it is, um, just read, you know, really just read. And as for writers, write. Um, Find the time, set the time aside for it. This is your passion. This is something you want to do. This is your legacy, whatever it is. Set aside that time, make time for yourself. I think women in particular uh, don't do that, especially those of us that have children and are married. They tend to, you know, are busy with housework or child raising or, or whatever it is, and they don't set the time aside for themselves. So um, in my case, what worked is I got up early at six, uh, a couple hours before the kids got up and every day for an hour and a half or whatever, I would just write, um, which was great too for me because then all day long, I'm thinking about that story and actually writing more in my head, my parting shot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. I didn't come up with that phrase. I would have made a lot of money if I had. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, it's been so great to have you on the show today. I'm so glad that you said yes and that we were able to meet and connect at the UW-Madison Writers Institute and to continue this conversation. Yes, me too, Sarah. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Absolutely. If listeners want to learn more about you and all your books, they can find you at kristenoakley.net. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with memoirist, poet, and associate editor for Pank Magazine, Sheila Squalante. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together. <laughs>